Buenos días. I am intrigued. My cousin Junia has joined them. She says it's the best decision she's ever made, and she's encouraging me to do the same. Now, I wonder, my mom and my uncle haven't spoken to each other for years because she worships Diana, and he says there's no god like Saturn. I personally favor Venus, the patrons of her temple, put on the most delicious banquets. You see, our people have so many gods, and they're all at odds with each other, as are their worshipers. In contrast, Junia tells me, people in this sect worship only one god, so family loyalties are not divided. When I reminded her that our Jewish neighbors also worship only one God, and they've been around a whole lot longer than this new religion, she laughed. Tell me, when have you, as a Greek woman, ever felt fully welcome to worship the Jewish God? They expect you to become a Jew. And even if you submit to all their traditions, you will only ever be second class or third. You will never be one of them. With the people of the way, it is different. Everyone is fully welcome. Now, both biblical and extra-biblical accounts portray the communities of the way as ones in which people of all sorts of ethnicities, social classes, and cultures shared the table, encouraged and cared for one another, reordered their economies, and gained the favor of their neighbors. In addition to Luke's account and to what we can glean from the New Testament epistles, scholars of the ancient Near East give evidence of the countercultural nature of these communities. For instance, Rodney Stark, who asks, and I quote, how come this insignificant movement in three centuries became the religion of the Roman Empire? Not that we necessarily want to be that, but his answer, along with the input of other historians, Although there were leaders in the various communities of followers of the way, it was the faithful commitment of the common members that accounts for the growth of these communities. They did not construct buildings nor invest in their upkeep. Instead, their offerings were destined to buying the freedom of slaves, sustaining the vulnerable among them, and supporting their itinerant envoys who connected them to one another. In addition, when people fled pest-invested cities, Christians stayed or intentionally went into them in order to tend to the sick. Finally, these were people who gained respect because they were willing to die but never to kill for their faith. Of course, as we know, diversity, inclusion, mutual care, and reordered economy did not come easily. There were those who demanded that newcomers submit to Jewish traditions and religious practices in order to become full members of the Jesus community. 
And there were those who operated within the ruling patronage system, which we talked about yesterday, buying people's favor and the best seats around the tables. At the same time, and thanks to the border-breaking, reordering work of the Holy Spirit, there were those who resisted imposing such cultural filters, recognizing that God was at work far beyond their ethnic bubbles. And there were those who sacrificially gave in order to reorder communal economies and ensure that no one's need went uncovered. In so doing, they were bursting out of old wineskins and rewriting belonging in faithful followership of their teacher. They recognized that they were sent beyond and they were rewriting belonging. Now, I propose that those church leaders who discern the need to open the doors wider than their natural tendencies would have them do were reading themselves into a story far larger than themselves, a story that spans wide and deep from creation to recreation. For starters, I suspect many of them had witnessed Jesus' outrageous embrace of outsiders, touching lepers, affirming women, healing the Roman enemy's servant, walking through despised Samaria. I suspect many of them remembered or had heard of Jesus' teaching in the Nazareth synagogue at the beginning of his ministry. We heard today of that comfortable Sabbath during which the joyful congregation, initially amazed at Jesus' teaching, had turned into an angry mob ready to kill him. All why? Because he had dared to edit the Hebrew scripture, clipping out the line about God's vengeance and replacing it with the outrageous expression of how God's love embraced people from heathen nations that had oppressed the Israelites. Or perhaps they remembered or had heard of that embarrassing day toward the end of his ministry on which Jesus had tossed the tables of the temple merchants. Perhaps, although at the beginning they had been baffled, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit had granted the disciples a new understanding, and they realized that the issue had not been business in itself, changing money, selling or buying, but that even so there were two interconnected problems. One was the how, the other was the where. First, business was most likely not being carried out ethically. Sellers were probably overcharging the poor pilgrims who had come from afar and had no other option than to pay the jacked-up prices charged for their temple offerings. Second, and as important, business was being transacted in the outer court of the temple, the area designed to welcome foreigners into God's presence. By allowing trade to take place there, the temple leaders were depriving Gentiles of access to worship and belonging. Perhaps these disciples now recognized that Jesus' anger had been directed specifically at the pious religious leaders, those who should have been guaranteeing that business be clean and that the temple be open to all nations but instead were personally benefiting from the unjust arrangements. 
Perhaps they realized that the story actually went further back. Certainly, Jesus had demanded, and Jesus said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Jesus had cited familiar Hebrew scriptures that his listeners would have recognized as words of the prophet Isaiah, words we know as chapter 56, verse 7, 6 and 7. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. By citing this portion of scripture, Jesus had hearkened back to the law given to the people of Israel, a law that made provision for the welcome and livelihood of foreigners along with widows and orphans as special recipients of God's favor. In so doing, he embedded both himself and his followers in a story which had begun far before their time. In his teaching and his actions, his first followers along the dusty roads of relegated Palestine would have heard echoes of the ancient Hebrew law, which included ethical demands, like the following in relation to people outside their inner circle. Leviticus 23:22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Could they help but recognize then that following in Jesus' way demanded caring for the sustenance of the people rendered vulnerable by the society of the day? Leviticus 19.33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Could they help but recognize then that following in Jesus' way demanded setting aside discrimination and offering a wholehearted welcome to diverse people? Leviticus 24:22. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Could they help but recognize then that following in Jesus' way demanded ensuring equal rights and responsibilities in the new body politic to all people, regardless of socioeconomic, ethnic, political status, or place of birth? A quick review of the story into which these first followers wrote themselves. In creation, God had opened up space and filled it with colorful, joyous, beautiful, and diverse forms of life. Through the law, God had made provision to guarantee the dignity and the livelihood of people made vulnerable through loss, deprivation, and humanly constructed borders, as we just heard from Leviticus. When people strayed, faithful prophets had told the truth, denouncing false readings of reality and calling Israel back to its mission of living out 
God's good purposes for the whole of creation. Through his life and teaching, Jesus had brought this calling to the forefront. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 7. Jesus highlighted the purpose of his time on earth in relation to God's law. When Rome and temple elites valued people according to ethnicity, social status, and how much they contributed to the coffers of the empire, Jesus stepped bold and counterculturally into a prophetic role of an alternative story. Within this story, he could not but clean out the temple. And this is a dimension of the calling he entrusted to his disciples when he was getting ready to hand his ministry over to them. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Same calling, same spirit, the spirit of wide embrace. God's spirit who hovered over the waters, breathing creation into being. God's spirit who inspired and empowered the prophets of all to tear off religious facades and call God's people back to their true calling to be a blessing to those outside their borders. God's spirit who anointed Jesus to tell and live the truth of God's love all the way to the cross touching the untouchable, uplifting the marginalized, affirming the dignity of those society undervalued. That same spirit is in all Jesus' followers today, yearning to write us into a story of belonging in God's story of love. Will we allow her to break down our prejudices and barriers be they racial, ethnic, cultural, religious, ideological? Are we, as the pagans of yesterday and today, worshiping the competing gods embedded in public narratives of success, security, privilege, entitlement, even when these gods are dismembering our families and communities because they're never satiated? As Christians, we pay at least lip service to the priesthood of all believers. But might traditions, orders, academic requirements, or prejudices related to gender, race, ethnicity possibly be depriving plenty of members of the body of Christ from living out their callings? Will we respond to the Spirit's promptings that urge us to question structures and strictures that keep some people in and some people out, or some as first and others as second class? Will we step out in bold denunciation of economic systems that deprive people of the full life God intends for the whole creation and become communities of embodied annunciation through reordered economics? Will we recognize that as Jesus, we are sent beyond our social and ethnic bubbles? What new modes of being are required so that we, communities and members and friends of the church, may step into the story of God's expansive 
and reordering embrace. The question I leave with us in some is, into what story are we writing ourselves today? Amen.